Good morning. Uh, good to see you. <clears throat> so happy to be here. I was just going upstairs for a minute, and there's a bunch of kids up there. I thought, well, I got to go down and hang out with the old people. <laughs> oh. oh, well, looks like they're going to have a good time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, today... I'm going to talk about the lion's roar of Queen Srimala, uh, which is also known as Sutra, also known as the Srimala Devi Sutra. And uh, I decided I want to talk about this one because I was using some material from it in a book I'm writing. And then I came here, and uh, every Saturday we chant like, oh, the lion's roar. We don't chant the text. We just mention the name of it like, oh, this is really awesome. And then I was like, I, I know very little about this, and I suspect almost everyone else here doesn't either. So I thought, well, since this is something that every week a whole bunch of people come here and celebrate, uh, why not talk about what's in it? <clears throat> um, so the Srimala Devi Sutra, the Lion's Roar of Queen Srimala, is uh, probably about a third century Indian text, which was very influential on East Asian Buddhisms, uh, in particular, Chan and Zen traditions. And uh, it's main, generally people say the main theme of it is Buddha nature, or the fancy word for that is Tathagatagarbha, which means the womb of Buddha, which basically means you are inseparable from Buddha. The theme of the text is that you are inseparable from Buddha. <coughs> Buddha is right there in you right now. So why not pay attention to what's in you right now? Wow. <clears throat> so uh, this text, well, even though it was really influential, it sort of stopped being talked about a lot. It's, there are some later texts that deal with the same material that are a little bit more, um, mm, they lay out the arguments a little more clearly, I guess that would be fair to say. But the nice thing about it is it's short. So if, if you're like, ooh, I, 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 I want to read a Mahayana Sutra, it's like 10 pages, which... <laughs> <laughs> relatively speaking, a very blessed, <laughs> blessed experience. Um, and the, the themes of this, uh, for those of you who like this sort of information, is, is closely related to the Lankavatara Sutra, which is sometimes like the early Zen teachers were called Lankavatara teachers, and the what's called the awakening of faith in the Mahayana. So... Uh, it is distinctive in that there are many, many sutras where there are uh, women who teach dharma, but it's, it's probably, of all the sutras I've ever seen or heard of, it's the one where a woman's voice is most central. So basically, it's just a conversation between Queen Srimala and Buddha. Her parents say, wow, you're really amazing. I'll bet you can teach the dharma. And then the Buddha shows up and says, yeah, you sure can. And then she does. It's kind of like that. And then she kind of checks in with him. Am I getting this right? He says, oh, yeah. So it's like that kind of the vibe. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm going to be teaching a class on the Four Noble Truths coming up. And, you know, the way I will structure that class is based on the way the Buddha's first teaching about the Four Noble Truths is structured, which is that he doesn't teach the Four Noble Truths at first. He teaches the path to liberation, and then he teaches the Four Noble Truths as an explanation for why you should engage in the path of liberation. And this is a, actually a similar formulation that happens in the Srimala Devi Sutra, because it's going to talk about Buddha nature, 
which is why you should engage in the path of liberation, because you're already Buddha, so why not act like one? But it starts by talking about practicing the six paramitas. So in early Buddhism, the main path model is the Eightfold Path. And in Mahayana, the, the six paramitas are the main path. And uh, I'll talk about this more, but I'm just going to quote this passage from the Srimala Devi Sutra, which says, <coughs> the uh, paramitas is sometimes translated perfections. The perfections are not one thing, and the embracer of the illustrious doctrine something else. The embracer of the illustrious doctrine is themselves the perfections. So that is to say, the person who is doing the practice of liberation is the person who has embraced the Dharma or Buddhism. And those are not separate things, and you're not separate from your activity. So anyway, the six paramitas, uh, worth knowing what they are. Uh, Shila, or I'll go in order, the normal order. Dana, which is giving. Shila, which is ethical conduct. Um, Shanti, which is endurance. Jan, uh, virya, which is energy or zeal. Jhana, which is meditation, and prajna, which is wisdom. So giving, ethical conduct, endurance, energy, meditation, and wisdom. This is, as it says in the Mahayana Samgraha, both the cause and the result of liberation. Almost like there's no boundary between the cause and the result. Hmm. So <clears throat> if you are embracing these six paramitas, you have embraced the teaching. The perfections are not one thing, and the embracer of the illustrious doctrine something else. So here, just to be clear, the idea isn't that you read a book and you go, oh, I get what the Dharma is, and you're all good. It is actually the embodiment of the activities of liberation that is the interest of Buddhist teaching. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I'm going to talk a lot about boundarylessness today, so get ready. Um, so here... We're talking about, as he says, the embracer of the, uh, the text says, Srimala Devi says, uh, the embracer of the illustrious doctrine is themselves the perfections. So when you engage in giving in the way that Buddhism is invite you to engage in giving, there's not a you that gives. There's not a person who does a thing. There's just the thing, just giving. So there isn't a boundary between the self and the activity and the Dharma. So uh, it always feels like this, of course. So every time you've given something, it's just been totally natural without any sense of boundary or giving something up from yourself or having to sacrifice anything, obviously. Uh, well, maybe that's not quite true, right? So. On the other hand, we probably all have had experiences of giving where we were embodying this boundarylessness. And actually, we're probably not aware of it because it's the non-awareness of it that is one of its more distinct characteristics. You're just giving. There's not like, oh, I gotta give something. You just, you care about someone, so you really listen to them. And you're not like, oh, I've gotta listen to them. You just listen. You have a, 
child who needs some food and you're not like, ah, got to go buy groceries for these rugrats. I mean, that might, that does happen. But also it happens that you just go to the store and you're not even thinking about it. Of course, you just buy the food and you give it to people. <clears throat> so the boundarylessness of giving that this sutra is talking about is not some mysterious foreign thing. It's common and natural. And all of the elements of the Dharma that are being celebrated here are natural capacities of human beings. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, when you're engaging in ethical conduct, uh, sometimes it's just really natural. You don't lie, because it's very clear that lying won't help. You don't have to think about it. Oh, I'm not lying right now. Hopefully you, that happens frequently to you. I'm kind of hoping that's true. Um, now, as I'm talking about boundarylessness here, it is often the case that in order to develop the capacities to do these things in such a natural way, um, there takes some work. So for example, I used to lie very, very frequently, like daily. Um, to lots of different people about a lot of different things. And, uh, you know, about, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, I was like, this really isn't working out very well. This just is not panning out for me. <laughs> At some point, I also realized it didn't help other people very much, but uh, the focus there was just like, this just sucks. I'm totally alienated. Um, and so, at that point, you know, I'd be like, I'd be talking to someone, I'd be like, oh, no, I'm about to lie. I'd be like, oh, I think I am not going to do that. And likewise with giving. I don't really want to give. And you might be like, um, I think it would be good to give. And then oh, you make that little new effort, plant that seed of a different way of being. But if we make these little efforts and we look at each of the paramitas, oh, zazen. I've got to go do zazen. What a bummer. What if... <laughs> What if you just Zazen got up and did Zazen in the morning? It's way easier, people. You don't have to get up in the morning and do Zazen. Just let Zazen do Zazen in here. There's a bunch of people. It's beautiful. <clears throat> but you might have to start out. Oh, now I'm going to build my lit. I've got to, you know, okay, for the next week, I'll sit 20 minutes a day. Yeah, that's good. It's probably necessary. But at some point, what can emerge is a way of acting in the world where it's not like, oh, I got to give. Oh, I got to tell the truth. Oh, I got to be kind in my speech. Oh, oh I got to do meditation. Oh, I have to endure the tor torments of the world. No. Kshanti, endurance, the ability to not have ill will when something arises. That's what, that's what Shanti means. The ability to not experience ill will when something arises. And you might, you know, we get, oh, I'm going to learn to accept things. Well, that's a dangerous path. But we can learn to be non-reactive so that when something difficult arises, we don't have to hate. We don't have to experience anger or aversion. It can just be, oh, it's like this. What am I going to do? Well, engage in the paramitas. Or maybe you don't even ask what you're going to do because the paramitas just happen. And you give your awareness away. 
You tell the truth. You do something that's actually conducive to liberation. So as these boundaries between the self and your activity disappear, it becomes less a life of this friction where you're like, ah, I did all these things and now I'm tired. Right? I did all the things and now I'm tired. It can just be like, oh, well, something happened. What was that? The paramitas happened. So, I just want to say, though, because the, kind of the theme of this talk will be the Srimala Devi's emphasis on boundarylessness. Um, here, the boundary between self and activity being um, dissolved uh, is that, you know, the term boundaries has various meanings. So the thing is, when you tell the truth, in a conventional sense, you're making a boundary to activity, right? So all the paramitas about thi are things that you do. So this hasn't actually eliminated the boundary between you as an agent who does things based on your understanding of what will be liberating from suffering. So boundaries does not mean telling other people what to do. In my opinion, that's bad boundaries. But saying, I will leave if you do that, or I will do X if you do that, or uh, whatever. All those things are boundary choices you can make. So like with Donna, you know, MZMC, well, I think we're encouraging boundaryless giving. But we choose to invite people to give money to Joyce Food, Self, Joyce Food Shelf, or at times Black Visions Collective. And those are boundary choices. We didn't just say give money to anyone. Just give it to Target Corp. They probably need it. I mean, that's fine. Maybe they do. I don't know. But that's not where we're inviting you because we understand that there is discernment that has utility. So all this talk about boundaries does not eliminate the ability or the celebration of your choice to do things based on what you think is best. That is to say, in a conventional sense, to articulate your boundaries. <clears throat> anyway, time isn't real. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, the next kind of thing that we get into with the, uh, this text in the, is Srimala Devi. Queen Srimala just basically says, time is not something that is an absolutely real thing. Uh, the boundaries we put around moments are not real. The boundaries we put around how time works are not real. They're just ways of looking at things. And if you think this is completely crazy, I'll just say, well, this guy was dumb. Albert Einstein, is that his name? Albert, Alfred, Albert, thank you. Time and space are not conditions in which we live. They are ways in which we think. This is a basic tenet of all Mahayana Buddhism. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, because that's not clear enough, I'm going to quote Nagarjuna, <laughs> which well, I hear the chuckles of those who know. So Nagarjuna, in his, you know, probably the most um, comprehensive and celebrated philosophical text of the Buddhist tradition, possibly, is Nagarjuna's fundamental verses of the Middle Way. And the text opens with these dedicatory verses. I bow to the Buddha, who taught that whatever is dependently arisen is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, not permanent, not coming, not going, 
without any identity, and free from conceptual construction. I bow to the Buddha who taught that whatever is dependently arisen is unceasing, unborn, unannihilated, not permanent, without identity, without characteristic, and free from conceptual construction. So I'm not going to do the philosophy part very much today, but what is this about? A world where all our ideas about discrete objects that come into being and pass away are not absolutely real so we can be free of trying to control those discrete objects. Where we can be free within the timelessness of this moment, boundaryless, without a boundary between self and other and self and activity, and the paramita can just happen, just giving, just non-ill will with what's arising, also known as shanti or endurance. Just meditation, wow. That's what meditation is usually like, right? No, maybe it's like, why are you there, you evil thought? <laughs> uh, but really, there's incredible peace available when we could just, at least for a time, put down our normal linear conceptions of time. This, by the way, doesn't mean that linear conceptions of time are useless. I mean, every, you know, this whole text of Queen Srimala is narrated through linear time. She meets the Buddha, someone asked her to teach, she meets the Buddha, they have a conversation, she talks in order. So yeah, I mean, we're not saying linear time doesn't have any utility or value, it's just not an absolutely real thing and it's very limiting, it's very limiting. <clears throat> and uh, just to also just kind of put the philosophy in relatively simple terms, our mind tries to make what is a total unknowable flux into something that we can manage. And so we're like, because I happen to conceive of things in momentary, in moments, they must be real and separate from the past and the future. And then because I'm remembering stuff or I have some ideas in my head about things I think I remember from the past, those things must have been in the past and lead in some logical order to what this will be and produce the other thing. So that's cool. It's pretty neat. You know what I mean? I don't know if birds do it. I don't know. But, you know, human beings tend to seem to, and it, it's cool. But it's not the absolute truth. And it's limiting in various ways, in large part because it sucks when things go away that we don't like, we feel sad. And that's, we feel sad because something that isn't absolutely real is, we think it's affecting us. But we can be like, oh, that's not absolutely real. There are other ways to view this. And uh, yeah, it gets really frustrating. You're like, oh, if I just do X, Y, and Z, I'll get, um, I don't know, I'm not a, Omega, I'll get A, I don't know. Anyway, and then you do all this stuff and then you don't get what you want. Does that ever happen to you? <laughs> it has certainly happened to me. And as I'll often say, you know, so many people I meet here, people have profound and amazing transformations uh, through Zen practice and being part of a community of people who really want to be well and learn how to do that. It's pretty great, but... I don't know, sometimes people are just, you know, they're, they go to meditation, they go to therapy, they go to the 12-step group, they 
try and figure out how to live right and they're still just depressed, anxious. It's hard. And uh, when that happens or when we feel that way, we're like, I've been trying to get the school system to do this thing that they're not doing for 30 years and it's still worse. Oh, it happens. The point of this teaching is that you don't have to give up and that you can realize Kshanti. And it's like this, I don't have to experience ill will. And, ah, giving can happen. I'm not saying you should feel bad if you have ill will or you should feel bad if you're exhausted or despairing. I'm just saying there's something else possible. Mahayana teachings are really, really into the possible. The possibility of liberation. How vast it can be. Maybe we can make some little changes, you know. What about just like, wow! We have no idea what could happen in this world, and it could be way more beautiful than our little imaginations can make. So at the end of this talk, and all our talks, and a lot of other things we do here, we'll chant the four bodhisattva vows, beings are numberless, vowing to free them, delusions are inexhaustible, vowing to extinguish them, dharma gates are boundless, vowing to enter them, Buddha's way is unsurpassable, vowing to become it, this is impossible stuff. That's the point. It's boundaryless. There's no boundary around the limit of the vow we're making. It's not like, oh, I just want to get a little better at not being a jerk. Well, that's not bad. If that's where you're at, I bow to you. That's good. But wow, we can keep opening up. You should be, oh, give me like this. Ooh, ooh, that vow is like a, it can turn you into a balloon. Then you just float into the sky. Then you disappear into the sky. Look up in the sky, the balloon's just gone. It's just sky. Srimala, Queen Srimala says, because the Tathagata, which means the Buddha, because the Tathagata does not dwell within the limits of time, the Tathagata, Arhat, Samyaksam Buddhas dwell at the outermost limit. The Tathagatas do not have a time limit for their compassion, for their pledge to heal the world. This is why timelessness is the central theme of Buddhism, to free us from thinking in these limited terms about what we can give away and what can be possible. Not dwelling in the limits of time, they do not have a time limit for their compassion. Ooh, I think I have a time limit for my compassion. There's some people I'm like, I'll give you five minutes and then I'm out of here. That's okay. I could be like, I can't tolerate. It's too hard for me to be with you, so I'm out of here. That's okay. But can I try and find some compassion for me? And then perhaps them in that situation. Then... Maybe that naturally arises, and then there's no boundary between the self and the compassion. <clears throat> so this is a big theme of the Queen Srimala text, is this timelessness of the Buddha. And uh, this is kind of wild. I think I'll read this real quick. When people exclaim, ah! For the world's benefit, the Buddha has compassion without temporal, temporal limit. 
has the pledge, the vow, without temporal limit. That's what we make at the end of this talk. They, when the people say that, they refer to the Buddha himself. When people exclaim, oh, for the world's benefit, this person is the refuge with imperishable nature, permanent nature, steadfast nature, they refer to the Buddha himself. Lord, since that is the case, the Tathagata Arhat Samyaksam Buddhas in the world without refuge and without a protector are the imperishable refuge, the permanent refuge, the steadfast refuge at the outermost limit. Okay, well, the length, that was an easy passage, by the way. It's, it's, reading these old texts is challenging, I know. What they're saying is, if as she builds her argument for Buddha nature, she's saying, if you feel this timeless compassion and commitment, that's what Buddha is. That's all Buddha is, is the timeless commitment to liberate beings, to never give up. That's all it is, it's not something else. There's no boundary between that vow, Buddhahood, and if a person is manifesting it, there's no boundary, they're Buddha. So we're kind of building up this argument to the fact that too late, you're already Buddha. So uh, th there is a word in here that just, I see these, I used to see like red flashes in my mind. Permanent refuge, permanent nature. I'm like, what? Have you ever never heard of Buddhism? Because you know, everything's impermanent and stuff in Buddhism. It's like one of the central themes of the whole tradition. Everything is permanent. This language of permanence becomes very popular in Chinese Buddhism. But go back to Nagarjuna, unceasing, unceasing, unborn. So they just basically say the unceasing part and they forget to say, oh, you never actually came into existence. You were never a separate thing that came into existence. This separateness that makes a thing come and go it's just a way of looking at things that isn't absolutely true. So what we see with like the lion's roar of Queen Srimala is this very like affirmative, like, you know, I think impermanence. It sounds kind of like a downer. Everything's impermanent. It's like, yeah, but Buddha's permanent. Ooh, and you're Buddha. It's just a much more positive rhetoric. So in general, as you move Buddhism into China, there's a tendency to turn things, use the same philosophical things that emphasize the positive side. So, uh, this is just about getting more free, not waiting for liberation, not getting frustrated when you don't get what you want, but just being able to just see what's here heard, seen, smelled, sensations in the body, thoughts, emotions, without some other time, or some other activity, just flowing. <clears throat> okay, so now I want to talk about some more boundarylessness. Uh, boundarylessness through lineage. So, uh, we have like a lineal tradition, which means that we celebrate the fact that people have passed down the tradition in a linear timeline. Uh, and so every Saturday we chant the name of like, uh, I don't know, a lot of ancestors, 100, 200 something. And um, <clears throat> the Srimala Devi Sutra is celebrated in the section of our 
Saturday service that is, I would think we call it the women's ancestor chant section. <clears throat> when you chant the lineage, the idea is you call all those people right here. By seeing that there is a lineal transmission, you see that everything with that, in that lineal transmission exists right here. So definitely, my father is dead. There's no doubt about it. I, I was there when he died. It was terrible. It was a very, very painful process for me. Yes. Also, he's not gone. There isn't any words coming out of this mouth without him. That's a crazy... How would that happen? There is no seeing of you without my father who is right here. Right here. So linear time and the absolute collapse of time are just ideas. And when we chant the ancestors, the idea is to say those names and realize those people are here supporting us. We want to honor them. We want to... We want to live lives that honor what they did. So, all their vows for liberation for everyone are here. You could not possibly be here without them. You can't like subtract Patachara Panchasata from human history. There's no subtraction. It's part of a whole. So now... Uh, I want to chant this section of the sutra together with you because I just get bored of hearing myself talk. <laughs> so, and I love hearing your voices in this particular way. So I'm going to ask whoever's near these chant books to pass them around. And I suspect we're going to have to have one per two people. So one person can hold the chant book and the other. And if whoever's our Zoom host can just prepare, but not yet. Uh, share the screen of the MZMC chant book that starts with the line, the sky of samadhi and the moonlight of wisdom form the temple of our practice. So if you have never, if you haven't done much chanting here, you haven't done this particular chant, you may want to listen for a minute just to get what we're doing. Is Jay here? Yes. All right. Hi, Jay. Are you ready to do this thing? Jay is going to serve as the doan for this. Thank you for that, Jay, which will mean they'll... Yeah. Uh, 3.7. 3.7. So Saturday service, and the text will start just chanted by Jay, the sky of Samadhi and the moonlight of wisdom. So like I say, if you may want to listen for a minute, this has a... This particular chant has a... Pitch change, so it's a dama chit, dama chita vimala, adakasi abupala, and so forth. Okay, well, let's just realize that all these people are right here by putting them in our voices. Uh, all right, uh, Bernie, if you're the screen sharing wizard, could you share screen at this time? All right, looking good. And uh, Jay, please, if you would lead us. The sky of samadhi and the moonlight of wisdom form the temple of our practice. Our friends and family members guide us as we walk the ancient path. We express our heartfelt 
transmitted the authentic Dharma, including the great matriarchs, and we pay homage to the mother of all Buddhas, Prajna Paramita, and to the first women who realized the
We have really nice chanting on Saturday mornings, but it's a few more voices here, so I appreciate that. Oh, look at all these people who just showed up. Kojima Kendo is here. Shindo Ayama. Wow. Wow, Pajapati. Their vows are right here. Lives poured into care about well-being for everyone. Your life is inseparable from this. Everyone is inseparable from your life and what you do. <clears throat> so then, uh, this text, the main the people would say the main theme of the Sutra of Queen Srimala is to Tagata Garba because uh, maybe it's like one of the earliest expressions of the term in, that is anyone has any record of. To Tagata Garba, to Tagata means Buddha, basically means thus come gone. It's a very it's kind of like a mysterious term. But anyway, garba means womb or embryo. So the womb of the Buddha, the embryo of the Buddha. Uh, and this basic idea is that there's no boundary between you and Buddha. That right now, everything that you could consider yourself is already empty of separateness. Hence, it's beyond time. Hence, it's not controllable or able to control things. It's just naturally the meeting of everything, which is compassion. Oh, pretty cool. And you're like, sounds nice, pal. Have you seen what's going on in here? Yeah, that's Buddha too. That's what this teaching says. Queen Srimala says, and the basic idea is, this is already the case, and you can learn to know it. So usually the language you often see in English translation is, the Buddha nature is covered by adventitious defilements, a term I really don't like because I have to go to the dictionary every time. How does that help any of us? Adventitious means impermanent. So it looks like there's something covering up what's already beautiful and complete here, but that's it's not absolutely real, it's just how we're viewing things. Queen Srimala says, the Tathagata Garbha is without any prior limit. It's non-arising and it's indestructible. Unceasing, unborn. Right? Same language that Nagarjuna uses. <clears throat> the Tathagata Garbha is without any prior limit, is non-arising and is indestructible, accepting suffering, having revulsion towards suffering, and aspiring to nirvana. This is the part that the reason this text didn't gain all that much traction is they don't really explain why that's true. <laughs> but that's okay. Accepting suffering makes sense because they're suffering. Turn on the news. And, it, and if you don't have time for that, just tune in and be like, what, what is it like for me while I'm sitting at this stoplight? Even if you're utterly full of joy and you got your favorite jam on the thing, you're probably like, when is that going to be green? Some part of you waiting for something else. <clears throat> so, uh, but accepting, that's what the text says here. Kshanti, endurance, is to experience what's happening without ill will. 
at the third paramita. And that's what we're talking about here. Just being able to say, it's like this. It's like this. That's, that's actually like this. In fact, the two Chinese characters like this occur thousands and thousands of times in Buddhist literature. It's like this. They're not even saying it is this. It's like, it seems like this to me. Yeah, and I can just meet it. But this thing of, this is having a revulsion towards suffering. Well, what? And aspiring towards nirvana. How can you aspire towards something you're already in? That's weird. Well, it's not my fault that they wrote this down, but I am supposed to talk about it. Probably for practical purposes, we can just understand this as things that seem different to us. We have moments where however it is, we can really meet it with some spaciousness. And there are other moments where I say, this suffering is too much and I really want to do something to end it. And those two can be part of two feet that walk. And we say, I see this suffering, I want to do something about it. So I'll move towards it and care about it. And then that transforms our tendency to be averse to it. And we can move closer, closer and closer into intimacy with the whole world. like this passage. The Tathagatagarbha is not the domain. Oh, the Tathagatagarbha is neither a self, nor a sentient being, nor a soul, nor a personality. The Tathagatagarbha is not the domain of beings who fall into the belief in a real personality to adhere to wayward views whose thoughts are distracted or overwhelmed by emptiness. Uh, so first, personality. Well, it seems like I have a personality. Just ask my family members. Um, but, you know, there's freedom when we realize, if I say, yep, <clears throat> I don't like disco, I suffer, because guaranteed I'm going to hear some disco. <laughs> but if I don't notice that I don't like disco, and it's like, at the Copa. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I'm having fun. Everybody dancing. I'm at a wedding. Why not be free? Once you say, I am X, you have bound yourself to something that can't be true and limits you. But if we say, oh, you can say, I have a tendency. I have a tendency to have aversion when I hear disco. Oh, well, that seems accurate enough. Not to, you know, if you're a big disco fan, I don't want to bust on you. I kind of like disco. <clears throat> so, whose thoughts are overwhelmed by emptiness. So some different translations say distracted, overwhelmed, bewildered. That's the one I wish I had. Bewildered by emptiness. So, you know, sometimes when we hear these teachings about timelessness, you go, oh, timeless, well, who cares? I don't even worry about anything. You know, so this is not nihilism. This is more like holism. Realizing our disappearing into the whole of the human and the non-human condition. 
So I just want to say there's one other thing at the end of this text that I, I really I liked, and I've gone a little long, but I just got to say this. There's a section on faith at the end, and I'm not going to read the whole passage because the language is really kind of thicket. But basically, she's, Queen Shumala says, this is really hard to understand. And the Buddha's like, yeah, you're right. It's really hard to understand. And she says, well, this is the deal. Some people will directly experience this. This is important. You can directly experience this. That's the whole point. It's not somewhere else, and it's not someone else. Two, she says, some people will really understand the Dharma cognitively. So they'll hear this talk, and they'll be able to be like, I'm not sure what he's getting at, but I'll go back to the text, and you'll actually figure it out and be like, I totally get it. I could make the logical arguments. Cool. This very standard in Buddhism, we make two basic appeals, appeal to direct experience and appeal to logic. This is the main grounds for truth claims in Buddhism. So it says, some people will directly experience this, what she's been talking about, boundaryless between self and activity, between time and space, between self and Buddha. Some people will understand the Dharma, and they'll, they'll understand this through that means by thinking about it. And some people will be like, I don't get this. This is totally overwhelming, and I can't deal with it. And those people can just use faith. Wow, that's actually how most people have engaged this tradition in human history. I'm not going to figure out Nagarjuna's philosophy. And I'm not going to meditate for thousands of hours and realize total liberation. I'm going to go to a temple. I'm going to bow to that statue of Buddha that represents all these beautiful things. And I'm going to do my best to live the six paramitas. Millions and millions of people have embodied the Dharma in that way. So in practical terms, though, if you're like, I just don't understand what these people are talking about, that is not entirely surprising. <laughs> and actually, the texts relentlessly say it's likely to be that way, and that's okay. It doesn't mean we should put down logical argumentation as part of the tradition. It can be part, and you can just come here on Saturday, sit zazen, and embody your total liberation through zazen, and then do a bunch of bows and chant beautiful things and in invoke the names of powerful beings who represent love and compassion and kindness. So I trust you to find that way. Thank you. <clears throat> so uh, now, uh, just invite other voices. Uh, questions or reflections are welcome. <clears throat> if you're online, you can probably nice to use the hand raise function, but you could try just unmuting and talking. Yeah, go ahead. I just have a question. The book, The Way of the Bodhisattva, is by Shakti Diva. Does that literally mean like endurance and then for the Shakti and then does Diva mean something? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, Shanti Deva, the, so 
referring, you may not have heard the question, he says, in the book, The Way of the Bodhisattva by Shanti Deva, is the name Shanti Deva mean like a god of Shanti? There are different terms. I can't, does anyone remember what Shanti means? S H A N T I? Peace. Peace? Oh, yeah, Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Yes. So Shanti means peace. Uh, Shanti with a K, K, K S, is the third paramita of endurance. So they're different things. But the way of the Bodhisattva expounds at length on the paramita of Shanti, which is, a, you know, the way of the Bodhisattva is to do the six paramitas. So it's a big theme in that text. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so you made this distinction between like direct experience and kind of like the intellectual understanding. And I sometimes feel that like the intellectual understanding kind of paradoxically can interfere with or kind of block the ability to directly experience things, especially if you're like thinking about what the direct experience should be. So, <laughs> I guess could you maybe like expand on the relationship between those two things a little bit? Yeah, well, I guess what I could say is a good thing to do is do one and then do the other. That's what I would recommend. It's like, you know, it's, it's great to really engage you, you, the, your powers of cognition to figure stuff out, but boy, isn't it great to take a pause and actually, for most of the people here, I bet most of us are aware that if you really, really commit to taking a pause, you get like 10 minutes on a good day. It's like the mind really wants to figure stuff out. So Buddhism, Buddhist traditions in general celebrate harnessing the capacity of the mind to orient towards liberation and thinking about how liberation can happen. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I would say, it, but then each one of us maybe has to find a balance. So you might be like, geez, okay, now I've, I'm reading all these tones and I'm getting get my head just seems really full. Well, then just take a break and be like, now I'm just going to do a lot more sitting meditation and going for walks and feeding people, you know, these more natural non-cognitive um, activities. So it's like a balance. Um, but yes, definitely, uh, either one can get in the way of the other, though. Um, you know, people can get kind of spaced out on meditation. So it's, sometimes you'd be like, that's why here in training, you know, you get to come and sit for a retreat. You don't have to figure anything out. Everything is defined for you. People bring you food. People tell you when to get up, when to sit down, how to walk. It's great. And then pretty soon they're like, good job. Now you have to be the one who tells everyone what to do. And then you're making lists, you're planning. So there's a, we, we work, work to integrate those two methods over time. So thank you. <clears throat> Anyone uh, online want to jump in? Yes, I actually had a question. All right. Hi, my name is Paul. Um, <clears throat> so um, every every few times a year, uh, there's this uh, guy who comes into my store. Um, he's uh, somewhat of a, I guess, conspiracy theorist, and he has also been uh, known for making some anti-Semitic remarks here and there. Mm. 
And, you know, I'm wondering if I, normally my modus operandum is just to, you know, try to avoid conversation with them. But I'm wondering if, you know, by doing that, just if just <clears throat> if showing a lack of compassion for him is actually worsening his state and is and i'm just kind of wondering if in this age where it's so easy to fall for any sort of misinformation is it possible to show compassion to potentially bring somebody out of that hmm. well just um let me just acknowledge like the enormous um, harm that's been caused by anti-Semitism and, and is caused uh, daily worldwide um, in, in complex ways, sometimes very subtle and sometimes very overt. So since you raise that, just wanna acknowledge that out loud. And then say, you know, when, when it comes to an interpersonal situation where there's a person who you find challenging or maybe doing something harmful and the question of compassion arises, for me, the first step is to notice how I feel and knows what's going on for me. That's the first locus of compassion. So as Shurto says, turn around the light to shine within, then just return. So then having done that, um, I'm likely less likely to need to project onto the other person a bunch of stuff from my own baggage. And then, uh, you know, compassion means caring about how people feel. So I don't think there's ever a time when it's not useful to care about how people feel. So, you know, with this person, you'd be like, oh, you know, how do they feel? I don't know. You haven't described their feelings, but that would be a subject of interest to me. And then um, kind of from that grounding to me, the question becomes, is there some way I can talk to this person um, that acknowledges that I think that some of the things that he is saying harm people or are part of a pattern of harm? and looking for a context where that conversation can, can happen, which is, in the context of this talk, is a fundamental component of shila, which is the second paramita, which is ethical conduct, which includes right speech, which includes directly confronting people or talking to them about things that are difficult in a way that is true, kind, and timely. So those are some ideas for you, and I appreciate you bringing it up. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Ben. <clears throat> I'm realizing that we may have reached uh, the limit of time. That's where Buddha hangs out, in the boundaryless limit of time. Um, but I think that I will thank you all for your kind attention and, uh, and turn it over to our Doan. Thank you. All right.